Hello, tentative listener. We're looking for well-rounded designers to join our teams in Austin, Boston, London, New York, Raleigh, and San Francisco who are interested in growing their design and consulting skill set over time. As a designer at ThoughtBot, you collaborate with developers and clients to turn ideas into great products that people love to use and help grow successful businesses. ThoughtBot works with companies in every step of the process to help identify and solve problems. We lead and participate in product design sprints, build high-quality apps, and then deploy them. We use emerging and effective technologies and methods on both internal and client projects. We believe there is a better way to work, and we want to find it and share it with as many people as possible. Visit ThoughtBot.com jobs to learn more about working at ThoughtBot and to apply. Live from New York. <laughs> oh, you guys can say that. That's pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's uh, that's Kieran's voice. That's his line. I was going to say we should introduce the two of you since you're two new voices and probably explain the live from New York and why I was so excited about that. Well, that's assuming everyone doesn't know our voices already. I, well... <laughs> Do the two of you want to introduce yourselves? Uh, no, I, I really want you to introduce <laughs> us. <laughs> Actually, live from New York, it's Tyson, the design director of the New York office, and Kieran, the designer in the New York office. Uh, we, I don't know we how just have one. I haven't watched Saturday Night Live in so long. It sounded like you kind of came down in enthusiasm when you were introducing <laughs> me there. I, I just like you, you wanted to say. Throughout the entire thing. <laughs> I, I noticed I a definite drop in enthusiasm. Kid from New York! <laughs> <laughs> How's that? All right. Yeah, I think we're peaking. <laughs> so how about those, you know, apples we're picking this weekend, huh? Is it apple picking right right now? now? Big apples? Oh, small ones. (laughs) We only have big apples here in Texas. Well, that's Texas. (laughs) I was reading an article recently about how much R&D effort goes into coming up with new apple varieties. And I think most of it is happening in Minnesota. I'm kind of shocked that there's new apple varieties. Oh, yeah. I thought there were only like a couple and that they stayed the same. There's and hundreds. one of the most fascinating thing is that, you know, when they develop a promising variety, there is this huge lag time of years before it can actually be produced at scale because you have to grow all the apples and all the apple trees. Yeah. So that's fascinating because I think we're also in, in, a, in a time where we're, we're sort of bringing back like heritage seeds too, right? So we're diverging in two different directions here. It's just so fascinating to me from a product point of view that... I have something that I think is going to be a hit Apple, but I have to wait 15 years to actually prove whether that's the case or not. Are there people working in the food industry setting trends? How do, how do you know it's going to be a hit? Well, they're, they're guessing that it's going to be a hit based on the hit apples of the past, like Granny Smith, and what this flavor profile has. So there's different apples for different kinds of things. You mentioned Granny Smith. Like those are really good apples for pies, I believe. And there are other apples that are really good for eating. Like I love eating pink lady apples. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. You don't eat your pie? Well, I first cut up the apple and then put a bunch of other (laughs) ingredients to make a pie as opposed to a pink lady apple where I just bite into it. Mm -hmm. There is no chopping and other ingredients. 
But th- there's a whole world behind this thing because I think Pink Lady, I don't know if I'm getting this right, but there's Crips Pink, which I think is maybe the IP restricted version. And then I think Pink Lady is the kind of open source version. An underground network of apples. <laughs> It all starts underground, Kyle. <laughs> I was just thinking of the, the jobs to be done of different apples, because that's Ooh. what the common, combination of what we said we were going to talk about versus what we are actually talking about. Ah, yeah, subtle transition. We were having a discussion, all three of us, in Slack about two weeks ago, which started because you were doing what, Kyle? Uh, some sort of presentation <laughs> on jobs to be done and how I've used it on some of the projects that I've worked on. It's a webinar, right? A webinar? <laughs> we don't use that word around here. <laughs> workshop. Digital workshop. Whoa. <laughs> Why did you think that it would be a good idea to put on that workshop? I don't know. Because I've used jobs to be done in a, a few different ways and, and I hear a lot of different people talking about how they're sort of confused sometimes about what it is or how to sort of put it into practice. Like the the people generally have heard of the theory, but don't know how to take like the next step and put it into practice in their day-to-day or week-to-week or month-to-month jobs. And when you say people, you mean inside ThoughtBot or clients or who exactly? All of the people. Mm. Just all of them. Too broad. Yeah, uh, people within ThoughtBot have asked me about how I've used Jobs to be Done. And then people, some of our clients, there's usually like a big education piece, especially when I'm on the project and looking to use a lot of these tools, techniques. And then a lot of it is project managers, because I think they're naturally more gravitated to the theory, but also designers thinking about like how it could impact their work. I've been continually fascinated with jobs and jobs theory since starting here. A couple of months ago, I think, I went to a jobs to be done workshop at Google's New York office, and it was it was being sort of spearheaded by Alan Clement, who wrote When Coffee and Kale Compete. And he was really trying to emphasize what is and isn't a job to be done, sort of the difference between a job to be done and just a problem. So for hmm. instance, he was emphasizing that a job is something ongoing, something that you need to make a continuous effort towards rather than just, you know, saying, I, I don't know, I stubbed my toe and it hurts. That's, that's a problem I'm having, but there's not necessarily a job to be done there. That sort of dovetails into the mindset that kind of when you've found the right job to start working on and understanding, you know, it's it's usually the job that describes sort of an evergreen problem, right? Like one that has existed for a very long time, you know, people wanting to get from point A to point B, and you can trace that back through decades and decades and decades of, of history and change and innovation and, you know, product changes over that time to, to think about how that job to be done is really at its core the same, but the, the products that people hire for that job changes. Yeah, that's that's exactly one of the points that Clinton Christensen makes early on in his book, Competing Against Luck. And he also talks about how the job has to be contextual. Mm. It's not just having that problem of getting from point A to point B, but what turns it from that kind of generic problem to, to actually having a job is is the context. He He illustrates this most clearly by talking about milkshakes, 
and pointing out that what they discovered when one of these fast food chains wanted to investigate how they could grow their their sales is that in the mornings, there were a set of people who were hiring the milkshake to make their morning commute much more interesting, which was a totally different job than a group of users in, in the in the evening who wanted to purchase milkshakes as sort of gifts for their kids so they could feel like better parents. Highly contextual. Same product, complete different situations. And what you might do to make that product fit better for the for the people in the morning, you might say, okay, well, we're going we're to make it thicker. We're going to put some chunks of fruit in there so that it feels like it has more surprise and variety. Might not work at all for the parents who want to purchase it for their kids. There you might want to sell really small sizes so that the parents don't feel so guilty about buying milkshakes for their kids. Didn't they also say it's like thinner milkshakes as well so that they can drink them faster? I remember either Clayton or Bob Mesta saying like they wanted to sort of like get the kids their milkshake, but get out of the restaurant as well. Right. So having something they could drink quickly as opposed to the like complete opposite for the morning use case. Mm-hmm. In the conversation that the three of us were having, we kind of all agree on what we've said so far about how you determine what a job is, but then... Tyson, you were sort of bringing up some of where you thought there was a limitation in how to apply jobs to the work that we do when we're building an app. Right. I think this is something that you kind of see often whenever you sort of get a, a shiny new tool, you know, and I think jobs is is perhaps still on the newer side to some of us. I think it's generally new to the to the entire sort of web and kind of digital product space. So I think we're all still kind of figuring it out. I've been fascinated recently of of if we've sort of appropriated the the theory to be a bit too broad and kind of apply in, in too many places. Like an example I was using is maybe not an example, but kind of a situation is whether jobs to be done should be used for an entire Trello board. We use Trello quite often here. It could be Jira, it could be anything that you're using for your backlog. But should every like card or story in that backlog have attached to it a written out job to be done story. My argument is no. <laughs> I think part of that argument probably is like we shouldn't be so dogmatic about any one process. And where I fell is sort of for things that seem very small or are bugs that, that we could potentially write a job for, it just feels like a little bit of overhead to write a job story for each and everything. And, and while we could doesn't mm-hmm. necessarily mean that we should. Yeah, I'm not sure that overhead really provides much value at the end of the day. And beyond that, I, I have been uh, very curious if it even goes as far as sort of watering down the jobs to be done theory. And so I feel like I've seen more and more sort of user stories with a jobs to be done mask on them rather than sort of a fundamental shift in the structure or, or language that's used in the user story to really dive into that job. It almost feels at times that people will kind of rejigger the wording just to, you know, put something in a different place in the sentence. And then it turns from, from a user story to a job story. And really what got my, my brain thinking, and I think what prompted me in that Slack, I guess last week it was, is I think we've been pinning the user story against the job to be done story or, or sort of using the user story as, a, as a, a foundation to then grow into what we now call jobs to be done stories and, and leverage. And I'm kind of curious if that's like the difference or if it's the the kind of wrong wrong thing to look at or or wrong sort of competition between the two 
And so my mind kind of went to, what if it's more like on the Epic level where, you know, broadly speaking, Epic's kind of collect or group a series of smaller tasks or meta tasks into a, a larger group that, you know, maybe you can launch an entire feature under the, under the guise of a, of an Epic. Is the Epic a more interesting level at which to consider jobs? Right. But then the question becomes, how do you know which of those tasks actually belong to that Epic? How do I know that I'm scoping these tasks appropriately for this Epic, this feature that we want to push out? I could argue that writing jobs for those smaller cards is what keeps us honest in making sure that the work is actually tied to the feature that we want to push out. I would agree. I, I think you have to put a lot of trust in your team. And that's kind of another thing that I think has prompted some some healthy discussion around this too is, you know, when you're switching to a, a more sort of user story-based workflow, which I find to typically be very sort of descriptive and solutions-based and moving more to a jobs-based workflow, I find the best job kind of stories to be broken down, to be left very kind of open-ended and they describe a pain point, not a solution. And so I think you're putting a ton of trust in your team in a good way to break that situation down and find the best solution. And when you're writing that, maybe in your Trello or, or whatever backlog you use, you're kind of acknowledging going in that you're leaving it open-ended and you trust your team to, to find that. Absolutely. I mean, I think the whole ball game is trying to remain in the problem space as long as possible and dividing the largest problem, which is the entire app, into continually smaller nests of problems that become individual Trello cards that represent the work that we're doing. What I thought you were saying is that sometimes you're seeing where cards don't actually describe a problem, but people are just kind of borrowing the language of jobs to be done without actually describing a problem. Is that the case? Right. And it kind of bleeds into a, something else I've, I've seen from time to time, which is kind of as a product team, designers, developers, marketing people, whoever else you might be working with, product managers maybe, breaking down large backlogs of, of jobs to be done stories, right? But sometimes they didn't even talk to the customer in that case, right? So at the end of the day, kind of all assumptions and they're sort of using the guise of jobs to be done to provide a framework and a means to break those down, but without having that customer voice in those jobs to be done stories, in those trail cards, then I would argue that that's not really a jobs to be done workflow. So what would be an example of a card that is sort of masquerading as a job to be done? Would it, would it be something like, when I'm browsing the site, I want to see three columns of content? Right. <laughs> and, and what's the problem with that kind of description? I mean, we can point out that that sort of like the way that you just said that we're all sort of like thinking of part of the thoughtbot.com website. You're adding a solution. And so a lot of this sort of comes back to job stories is just a tool, same as user stories, and they can both be sort of abused. So in that motivation, mm -hmm. you can put in a solution. And I saw this a lot with user stories, which is like the middle part of the user story. It was just like, do this task. Uh, or mm -hmm. create a dropdown or w whatever it was. And so like, I think w what is usually really good about jobs is hopefully it's putting people in the mindset of sort of dialing back one more step of like, instead of saying, I want it in three columns, you know, I want the content to expand to the width of my device, whether that be a small phone and a large monitor and everything in between and make sure that it looks great 
and takes advantage of that real estate. Even that, I would argue, maybe stops a little short because I don't think any user would arrive sort of thinking, I want the content to expand to the width of my device. The user might think, I want to read this content as easily as possible. Right. We could continue going down the, the like sort of rabbit hole there too. Like they, <laughs> yeah. they probably don't want to read the content. <laughs> right. And I think Karen, you kind of brought up also, you, you get to a point where you kind of, you're sort of trying to abstract and apply jobs to like just proper design theory, which at times has been heavily researched and there's tons and tons of documentation and posts and writing about that theory of design. And so like, I guess, where's the line? Like, at what point do you say, all right, this feels like a natural thing. It's okay to describe a solution here versus, you know, with those sprinkled in your Trello board now, where should jobs go? Where's that line? Is there a line? We've done a while ago now, and when I was in Philly, uh, a couple of different sort of experiments with what you're talking about, which is like, no matter what these tasks that we do, solutions that we make should sort of refer back to a job, but the job might sort of encompass a bunch of different solutions. So we did sort of what you're talking about, which is have jobs at an epic level, and then sort of every card pointed right back to that job as a solution to that job. We also, combining sort of jobs theory and agile, one of the the things that I did with our Trello board was just say that all jobs are cyclical and that they're never going to be complete and that we're just going to continue forever and ever to iterate on them. And so what we would do is as soon as like we created one solution for that job, we'd pull it back to the bottom of the backlog and say, okay, this is one solution. What's either the next iteration or what's a better solution after that? And so like we sort of just had these cyclical jobs, cyclical cards. Mm-hmm. Both experiments were sort of interesting. <laughs> And that goes back to our point about kind of jobs being evergreen, right? You know, mm-hmm. you can always kind of come back to them, you know, going back to kind of the thoughtbot.com like website where some of these examples came from, you know, that sounds like we're trying to apply jobs somewhere around like the service level or, or maybe within the service level, you have a handful of jobs, you know, so we're talking about and describing the services that as a consultancy we offer, you can do tons and tons of wonderful, great, deep jobs research, I'm sure, on people hiring ThoughtBot for specific services and the situation that they were in when they started looking, and you can build out a timeline. But it's tough to get to those places if we're describing a breakpoint in CSS. Right, but I think we're kind of circling around the same idea here, which is that if the card is essentially already a solution, then you know, link back to the job story or copy that job into the card and understand that what you're really doing here is an implementation detail, is not is, is just one of any number of ways to actually solve this problem. But that doesn't necessarily reflect that there's a limitation in the theory itself. In other words, is what we're talking about, you know, that the theory is insufficient to explain the work that we do or is it just that we're implementing it in a suboptimal way? Is it a theory problem or is it a practice problem? Yeah. And what I think I'm understanding here is like the theory is still driving that card forward in a sense. It just might be that the story is an umbrella to that little sub card, right? And so I think we're kind of questioning the like 
how far do you need to nest these things? You know, if you have a job to be done for your product as a whole or your application as a whole, and you might have a job to be done story for specific features within that product, how far do we keep nesting that down all the way to get down to really concrete, small bug fixes or just general good design changes that a group of designers on the team might all nod and agree on. But the theory is still there behind the scenes. The job to be done story is still there. And hopefully you have a relationship. So, you know, I I don't want to get too caught up in like, again, implementation details, but, you know, Jira actually has the core concept of like an epic. And so you would see that epic in that card. You know, Trello doesn't do a great job of that, but... Well, one of the things I think that comes in there in terms of where do you draw that line is scope. You know, you pointed many of us in the office recently to Ryan Singer's book, Shape Up. And one of the ideas that I love so much from that book is the idea of appetite. You know, Mm -hmm. what is the team's appetite for this feature? And if, you know, if it's something that we, we have an appetite of, you know, 10 minutes for, then it's not, it's not worth actually writing a job for that for those 10 minutes so let's just break the thing into three columns and be done with it but if our appetite and we think the scope of this thing is going to be even i would say two hours that's valuable time you know we want to sort of make sure that that time is doing real work and adding real value for the client bringing up shape up and reminding myself of also the fact that in that book they talk a lot about not just appetite, but also that Basecamp does something really that I find quite fascinating, which is they don't give you a backlog or they don't maintain a kind of core backlog for Basecamp. Instead, during these shaping meetings and the shaping process, they basically decide what the sort of larger, I would almost say job to be done feature that they're going to work on for their six-week cycle. And they provide that team that kind of larger problem to solve, but they don't give them a backlog they effectively give them a problem to solve, not a set of tickets or cards or or pieces of little work to go chew on. They let the team figure that out for themselves and create their own little backlog if they choose. I haven't read the book yet, but I'd be interested to see, like, I don't know if, if it's in there, how they present that information. Because I know that they're very heavy into jobs to be done. So I imagine mm-hmm. that they would have like a lot of switch interview information in there and, and timeline information and like defined it the problem with using jobs and and what the progress is that their customers trying to make. Right. And I think that kind of back to the name of like shaping, they're doing their due diligence to really, really shape that problem to be that good scope. And going back to kind of the appetite that, that Kieran is talking about, you know, so generally speaking, I think their appetites, I know they operate in like a six week cycle and stuff like that, but because all of those are knowns, they can help shape that problem down to a level that they feel is appropriate and then provide that to the team. And then they're breaking out all the to-dos and stuff based on, like you said, I'm sure they're providing research and, and insight going in. I think one of the, the key ways that they make sure that they're not being overly prescriptive is determining the level of fidelity of what they're going to present to that team. So, you know, they kind of make sure that they're not presenting anything that's so high fidelity that it becomes overly prescriptive and doesn't respect the creativity and experience that all of those team members can bring to crafting an elegant solution. Yeah, I think a lot of what we're, we've been circling around in this conversation is that jobs to be done is really great for creating understanding 
around problem sets and progress that people are trying to make, but it's not sort of dictating any solution. And so leaving that in the hands of the team to solve is sort of why all of these practices are like really good for us here at ThoughtBot is because we want to be the ones to solve those. Like we don't want to be handed solutions and just build a thing. We want to understand why we're building and make sure that we're building the right things. And James, our managing director in San Francisco, basically was making that point in a, an internal post this week, was sort of saying that, you know, we, we want to sort of push ourselves to understand our clients' businesses and what drives value for them. He's basically saying that if we're just being designers and devs for, for hire and not focusing on understanding the underlying jobs to be done, then, then clients are really overpaying for what they would get. I've even been, I'd say, somewhat successful at making this kind of connection and having these conversations all the way up in the sales conversations I'm having. So before we're even hired, before we're thinking about a trailer board, before we're thinking about code and design and all those implementation details, all the way in the sales process, I've had a lot of success just describing the concept or the theory behind switching, behind jobs, behind all of that, and using and leveraging that to drive a healthy conversation about how we are going to become that person's partner in their product design and development journey. And we're not here to just build a, a, a solution sort of blindly, but we want to truly understand and talk with potential customers of that product to make sure we're building the right thing and not the wrong thing. I found that to be really successful in the sales conversation and people have really kind of latched on to that. I would love if you could define what you mean by successful, because I know what often happens sometimes is that there's tension between the client and our team whenever it comes time to actually put this kind of approach into practice. There's often pressure to build and deliver things, even if we don't know yet that this is the right thing to build. Yeah. I mean, at some point, you're going to do a lot of research and you're going to potentially break down a Trello board and you're going to have lots of conversations and maybe you're prototyping and, and throwing ideas out there. But, you know, at the end of the day, you never know if something's going to be quote unquote successful or, or the right thing to build until you really get it out there. And so at some point you have to have a leap of faith and, and make that jump and build the thing. I would hope that you're doing it in a way that's highly iterative. You're doing it in a way that's as flexible as possible. You're doing it in a way that is research-led and you're sort of bucketing your learnings and knowledge in a way that allows you to see the path forward, but also maybe potentially the alternative paths that you could be taking so that you're setting yourself up for success to switch the path forward and, and maybe change how you're approaching something quickly and rapidly. One of the things that I think you just missed is part of that process. All of that process is collaborative. And so mm. I, I see it as an issue if us and the client aren't on the same page for a very long time, because that whole process should be collaborative of understanding what the jobs to be done are and how we're going to solve them. And if we figure out that they're the wrong ways to solve them, figuring out new ways. I think when we do get in a position where we're on a different page that the ThoughtBot team is than the client, then we either haven't brought them along and haven't been as collaborative as possible, or they're dealing with a different data set than we are. That reminds me of kind of that timeline feature of the jobs to be done theory, right? Like 
I find it great as like a tool to kind of talk about and, and point to and build conversations around because those are sort of real things that happened in time, right? And so it's very easy to have those conversations with clients if they weren't like an actual part of that, you know, interview or anything, or you're, you're sort of collecting and building a timeline from a group of people or something. But, you know, if you were to kind of pin it up against a persona and say like, here's our persona, here's our three ideal people that we're going to build this new thing for, right? Look here. And it sort of describes their attributes and a little bit about their life and stuff, you know, 30 year old. Brooklyn, female, et cetera, et cetera. Like none of those things really matter and they're highly abstract. But if you, if you talk about a timeline of events and you build that out and you can point to things and you can kind of identify and circle and look at these sort of pain points that people are hitting, it just feels so much more real. And I think it, it sort of drives a more real conversation forward that again, like clients are, are more open to kind of understanding those things. One of the things that occurred to me, as you mentioned, the leap of faith is that a lot of clients, they've been thinking about this product, this idea for a long time. They're very, very sort of invested, rightly so, in the potential success or failure of this thing. And they are very, very ready to take a leap of faith, so much so that they are often willing to build something very elaborate and then find out if users are going to respond to it. And often what we try to push for is not so much a leap of faith as just a a tiny hop of faith. What what we want is to actually push something out there so soon, so quickly, that the cost of switching paths, of switching directions, of learning and iterating is actually very small. I agree with that so much. In fact, I hope you're writing a pull request for the playbook (laughs) right now. (laughs) So I'll prove it. That might be a, a good note to end on. What do you think? Well, sure. We can always iterate on this later. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I like it. Sort of before I go into the outro, you know, one of our several million tentative listeners wants to get in touch with either of you. What's the best way that they can get in touch? You can reach me at my email address here, which is kieran at thoughtbot.com. That's K-E-I-R-A-N. K-E-I-R-A-N at thoughtbot.com. That's probably the easiest way. Yeah, I think that's the same for me, Tyson at thoughtbot.com. Or uh, you can find me at the Grand Army Bar in Brooklyn, you know, usually on Saturdays around four. You'll find me there. And if they want to talk about jobs to be done, is that on the table? Oh, yes. Cool. Well, this has been episode 77 of Tentative. Thank you all for listening. Yeah, I've been doing this for a while. You can email us at hosts at tentative.fm. You can see show notes at tentative.fm slash seven seven. You can follow us on Twitter at tentative.fm. Rate us on iTunes on how awesome Karen and Tyson did. That's it. First timers. Yeah. Thank you. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. Join our team dedicated to creating products people love to use. With open positions at our studios in Boston, New York, San Francisco, Austin, London, and Raleigh, come discover a better way to work.